Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to all you inquisitive folks out in the Boston radio audience and beyond. And in this episode, I want to try to sort of paint a picture, if you will, convey a big picture image about what's happening regarding our understanding of genetics. And this relates to yesterday's broadcast, The Primary Axiom is False, which was a discussion of the work by Dr. John Sanford, the retired Cornell geneticist, who defined the primary axiom as man is merely the product of random mutations plus natural selection and pointed out that the belief in this primary axiom goes completely unchallenged in academia. And it is essentially the simplistic view of evolution that is presented to the public. It certainly matches what I learned when I was in school, and it probably matches what you learned if you aren't pursuing an advanced degree in biology or biochemistry or evolutionary biology or some related subject where you've gained more understanding than a typical undergrad would have, if you're not in that group, then this description would probably match what you think about evolution as well. So let me try to paint the picture as generally presented to the public. Life gets started somehow. We don't necessarily know how, but it's purely chemistry. And indeed, it may have happened somewhere out in space, and those either living cells or at least biological molecules somehow got to Earth and that's somehow involved in the genesis of life. But we're not going to focus on abiogenesis, life arising from non-life in this particular show. We'll just assume it happened and you've now got a living, replicating cell or a colony of cells, okay? Now these cells have DNA, right? And DNA has genes, and the genes code for proteins. The cells use the gene information within the DNA, and they create proteins. And that's the primary thing that's going on here. The proteins define what kind of cell that is. And so the DNA specifies the gene, or contains the genes, which specify the proteins, and therefore you are your DNA, really meaning you are the proteins produced by the genes contained within your DNA. And all the focus was really on the genes. It was a gene-centric view. So let's look at that primary axiom again. Man is merely the product of random mutations plus natural selection. Random mutations. These are changes to the contents of the DNA, right? The mutations affect the DNA, and therefore they could affect a gene, which could affect the protein that gets produced, thereby making something different in the cell. And if these changes are beneficial, they somehow make the cell more likely to survive, or they somehow make this mutated cell more able to reproduce efficiently. Maybe it copies itself faster Somehow or other, it provides an advantage for the environment in which the cell resides, and natural selection is simply describing the process whereby the cells that have such an advantage simply reproduce more. 
And so this colony of cells winds up more and more dominated by this better fit cell, the result of mutation. Natural selection gets rid of the others that don't contain this mutation, and eventually the population of cells all have this mutated DNA. They have this new genetic information that provides whatever advantage it provided. And this is the basic mechanism, supposedly, whereby these changes from mutations make their way through an entire population, and supposedly this mechanism goes on and on, and you somehow wind up with all the additional necessary information to create entirely different types of creatures. I mean, we supposedly started with some type of single-celled creature, correct? The original living cell or cells, whatever that was, single-celled creature, some kind of primitive bacteria, something like that. But now we have highly complex multicellular creatures. Humans are an example. But we're told all of this resulted by just these random mutations causing change to the genetic code, especially the genes that produce proteins, and then natural selection acts upon these random mutations. That is the primary axiom. Supposedly, that explains everything. And what I just described is the neo-Darwinian view of evolution. It's often just called Darwinism. That's technically incorrect, but that's the way it gets used in the public very, very often. The difference is important. Darwin knew nothing about mutations. So his theory technically just worked upon natural variations that occurred within cells, whatever exactly that means. And as we began learning something about DNA and genetics and how this all behaves sort of at a chemical level, we learned about mutations, and this information about mutations was sort of blended with Darwinism and created this neo-Darwinian view sometimes called the modern synthesis, although modern is the middle of the past century at this point. But this is the view that is generally promoted to the public, and it's the view that is talked about by Richard Dawkins and popularizers of evolution. Neil Smokin' deGrasse Tyson is another example. When we come back, we're going to take a look at some of this very simple mechanism or process this evolutionary process, we're going to look at some of the details and examine some of what we actually know now and see how that relates to this neo-Darwinian evolutionary process. And remember, as I frequently say, the devil is in the details. Back in a moment. As we're trying to take sort of a simplistic, big-picture view of the neo-Darwinian evolutionary process, We'll just call that Darwinism, as is often done in public. You don't need to write into me and tell me I don't know what Darwinism is. I do. I'm going to simply use it the way it's used by the popularizers of evolution. So I do mean mutations plus natural selection. Well, part of this theory included the idea, very strongly promoted, that the vast majority of our DNA was actually leftover garbage. It was just completely useless junk from our evolutionary history. And all of the research and all of the focus was only upon the portion of the DNA, and it's a very small portion, that actually contains the genes. And we will 
perhaps have some time to talk about how ill-defined that term has become. But what we mean by that at the moment is simply the region of the DNA that is actively used to produce a protein. And again, this is a small portion of the total DNA, and the rest of it was considered just rubbish. And in fact, the presence of all this garbage, junk, leftover, useless DNA within the genome was used by people like Richard Dawkins and others, popular evolutionists, to say, here's proof positive there's no such thing as an intelligent designer or a creator. No intelligent designer would have put all this garbage into our DNA. It's ridiculous. Well, that story sounded sort of good, and it sort of made sense, until we looked at the details. And I might add, at this point, I'm not aware of any evolutionary experts who believe that what I just described, this neo-Darwinian mechanism, actually explains everything we see. They add several more different ways to get changes into the genetic code into the mechanism. And you might ask, why do they do that? Well, it's because this simplistic neo-Darwinian view simply doesn't work. It does not explain what we observe. And let me just share some words of one expert, Dr. Lynn Margulis, the creator of endosymbiotic theory, an alternative to neo-Darwinism. She basically said she was taught and believed the neo-Darwinian mechanism until she looked for evidence for it. And in fact, a number of non-Darwinian evolution experts got together at a meeting that has been dubbed the Altenburg 16 just a few years ago to discuss alternatives to Darwinian evolution. They're trying to figure out an alternative that actually works. Susan Mazur wrote this up in a book titled The Altenburg 16. And referring to Lynn Margulis, she says, she sees natural selection as, quote, neither the source of heritable novelty nor the entire evolutionary process, and has pronounced neo-Darwinism dead, since there's no adequate evidence in the literature that random mutations result in new species. And referring to this meeting, Lynn Margulis herself said, at that meeting, Francisco Ayala, another evolutionary expert, agreed with me when I stated that this doctrinaire neo-Darwinism is dead. He was a practitioner of neo-Darwinism, but advances in molecular genetics, evolution, ecology, biochemistry, and other news had led him to agree that neo-Darwinism's now dead. So Margulis is pretty plain in her words. She says, neo-Darwinism is dead. It doesn't work. It does not explain the origin of new species, new types of creatures. Is she the only one? Well, she said Francisco Ayala agrees with her. No, she is in no way the only one. Let me just share one more short quote because I don't want to spend the entire episode giving you this information, and we could. Again, in the book Altenburg 16, Massimo Piatelli Palmarini is quoted as saying, The point is, however, that an organism can be modified and refined by natural selection, but that is not the way new species and new classes and new phyla originated. Well, I just lied to you. I can't resist adding a couple more quotes from Altenburg 16. These are quotes of evolutionists, evolutionary experts, who no longer believe this neo-Darwinian evolution works because of what we've learned. Our advances in science have convinced them it is completely insufficient to, 
It simply doesn't explain what we see. It may have a small role, but it does not drive the whole process. For example, Stuart Kaufman said, There are people spouting off as if we know the answer. We don't know the answer. Antonio Lima de Faria said, Darwinism and the Neo-Darwinian synthesis, last dusted off 70 years ago, actually hinder discovery of the mechanism of evolution. Note, he didn't say in the past tense that it hindered. Rather, he said, they actually hinder the discovery of the mechanism of evolution. That's a very clear statement that we do not know the mechanism of evolution. Precisely what Stuart Kaufman said, we don't know the answer. And this leads naturally to a question. Why are we not told that evolutionists don't know how evolution works? Why instead are we told, of course we know how it works, it's mutation plus natural selection? Isn't it obvious we see it all around us? There's overwhelming evidence. Now consider the fact that the Altenburg 16 meeting was by invitation only. This was a closed-door meeting so that they could talk behind those closed doors about the problems with Darwinian evolution or neo-Darwinian evolution. But it's rarely discussed that way in the public. Consider some of these statements in the book, written by an evolutionist, mind you. While the Altenburg 16 have roots in neo-Darwinian theory, they recognize the need to challenge the prevailing modern synthesis because there's too much it doesn't explain. The Altenburg 16 recognize that the theory of evolution, which most practicing biologists accept, and which is taught in classrooms today, is inadequate in explaining our existence. A wave of scientists now questions natural selection's role, though fewer will publicly admit it. Evolutionary science is as much about the posturing, salesmanship, stonewalling, and bullying that goes on as it is about the actual scientific theory. It is a social discourse involving hypotheses of staggering complexity with scientists, recipients of the biggest grants of any intellectuals, assuming the power of politicians while engaging in animal house, pie-throwing, and name-calling. Some examples of the name-calling used by evolutionists? Ham-fisted, loony Marxist hangover, secular creationist, philosopher, that's a scientist who can't get grants anymore. Quack, crackpot, you get the idea. In short, it's a modern-day quest for the Holy Grail, but with few knights. At a time that calls for scientific vision, scientific inquiries been hijacked by an industry of greed, with evolution books hyped like snake oil at a carnival. Interesting comment about the hyping of evolution books. Back when people still read printed books, and there were businesses like Barnes & Noble, oh, I guess they still exist, sort of, I used to love to go to bookstores. And I would go over to the science section and stand back and look and see which of the expensive, colorful, large, hardback books, you know, the ones they've turned around facing the audience or the potential customers, so that you can see their pretty covers, how many of them dealt with evolution. And it was very often the majority. 
In fact, 20 or so years ago, you would always see at least one book by Stephen Jay Gould prominently displayed like that. And here's sort of a good summary from Susan Mazur's book. Scientists agree that natural selection can occur, but the scientific community also knows that natural selection has little to do with long-term changes in populations. The catchphrase that's often used, and accurately so, is natural selection can deal with the survival of the fittest, but it cannot explain the arrival of the fittest. And listen carefully to this phrase that comes from the invitation to attend the Altenburg Conference. We are grappling with the increasing feeling that we just don't have the theoretical and analytical tools necessary to make sense of the bewildering diversity and complexity of living organisms. Now there's an accurate scientific statement. I simply wish Neil deGrasse Tyson would say that on Cosmos. Well, it's pretty clear that if you get beyond the Cosmos show and the popular presentations of Richard Dawkins and people like that, and actually read what some of the evolutionary experts themselves write, and especially in their discussions among themselves, you get a very different picture about how solidly established evolution theory is. So let's think a little bit about why this fact is virtually unknown among the public. Why are we unaware of these difficulties and the many proposed mechanisms to try to get around them? The fact is there are several proposed evolutionary mechanisms, each of which is shown to be insufficient by the promoters of the alternatives. If you simply read all of their writings, you realize nobody has any idea how this really works. Why would that be? Could it be because evolution never happened? That is, the change of one kind of creature into another and all life having descended from an initial amoeba or something. That evolution. Certainly living things change. No question about that. Certainly natural selection has a role to play in that arena. But that type of change is finch beaks changing in size, etc. There's still finches. That's not the kind of change needed to drive molecules to man evolution. And neo-Darwinian evolution does not provide what's necessary And the experts know it, but students and the public never hear this. Why is that? There's a review of Altenberg 16 over at creation.com, and it has a section pointing out the things that Susan Mazur called attention to about censorship, existing censorship against non-Darwinian ideas. And she opposes that censorship, and she should. Creationists experience far heavier censorship. I mean, creationists are just considered to be complete buffoons and morons. That's how they're characterized. That's not true, but that's how they get treated. But listen to the censorship documented against evolutionists, just not Darwinian evolutionists. Now, these are the words of an evolutionist science writer documenting a conference of evolutionist experts talking about the process of evolution. The commercial media is both ignorant of and blocks coverage of stories about non-centrality of the gene because its science advertising dollars come from the gene-centered Darwin industry. At the same time, the Darwin industry is also in bed with government, 
even as political leaders remain clueless about evolution. Thus, the public is unaware that its dollars are being squandered on funding of mediocre, middle-brow science, or that its children are being intellectually starved as a result of outdated texts and unenlightened teachers. Now, remember, this is an evolutionist saying this. These are not my words. Listen to this statement. The mainstream media has failed to cover the non-centrality of the gene story to any extent. This has to do largely with Darwin-based industry advertising, editors not doing their homework, and others just trying to hold on to their jobs. The statement about the non-centrality of the gene, it's an acknowledgement that the old story that the genes control everything and that's all that really matters, and a mutation to the gene, that's how you drive evolution, is known to be false. But it's the central story. It's part of that primary axiom. Mazur also says, The thinking is we can no longer pretend evolution is just about Darwinian natural selection, even if that's what most biologists say it's about, and textbooks repeat it. The consensus of the evolution pack, that is the science blogs, still seems to be that if an idea doesn't fit in with Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism, keep it out. Stuart Kaufman said this, Unless the discourse around evolution is opened up to scientific perspectives beyond Darwinism, the education of generations to come is at risk of being sacrificed for the benefit of a dying theory. This is Stuart Kaufman of the Santa Fe Institute, who wrote At Home in the Universe, one of the main players in the whole self-organization movement. And Lynn Margulis reveals how the established worldview, that is evolution, enforces unity within its ranks when she says, People are always more loyal to their tribal group than to any abstract notion of truth. Scientists especially. If not, they are unemployable. It is professional suicide to continually contradict one's teachers or social leaders. This is from a professional evolutionist, just not a Darwinist. We'll look at one more statement. This is very enlightening because of the additional implications of this. I mentioned Stuart Kaufman and self-organization. That is one of the non-Darwinian approaches that many people tout. It's been around for well over 20 years at this point. Mazur notes that she asked Eugenie Scott, who was the head of the National Center for Science Education, what she thought about self-organization and why self-organization was not represented in the books the NCSE was promoting. She, that is Eugenie Scott, responded that people confuse self-organization with intelligent design, and that is why NCSE has not been supportive. And in a very precise statement, the NCSE does not recommend textbooks for schools if those texts include a discussion of self-organization. Now, the notion that anybody would confuse self-organization with intelligent design is absurd. This is blatant protection of the neo-Darwinian camp, of the story that the public is always told. Make sure the textbooks don't even challenge that story with other secular evolution theories. And by all means, don't tell school children and the public that we don't have it all figured out, that there's any doubt or question whatsoever about evolution. Bottom line is, evolutionists unanimously agree evolution has occurred. The experts admit 
nobody knows how it works. What they do know from science is that neo-Darwinism is insufficient. That is beyond dispute. And yet students are never told that. That becomes propaganda then, doesn't it? When a science class promotes a theory known to be false, it's nothing but propaganda. Evolutionists will admit that their fear of publicly abandoning Darwinism stems from a fear that the public may look at what intelligent design advocates and shudders creationists have to say about origins. So you need to know there's a great deal about the science of evolution that the public is completely unaware of and most experts ignore. The truth is the evidence for creation is quite solid. The evidence for evolution, not so much. SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com